Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, it's Lainey. It's Duanna. Welcome to Show Your Work, our weekly podcast about work. Just a little bit late this week because, well, we were working. Mm, was I working? I thought that's <laughs> where you were going to spin this. I really did. Mm, sure, I was working because I have something to say about where I was, but I was at Graceland. You were. And I'm not going to get into my whole Elvis thing because I, this could be an entire, there is an Elvis podcast actually, but anyway. I'm going to talk about a few things that I think that you would be interested in, even though you are not an Elvis fanatic. I know you have appreciation for for Elvis, as most everyone should have, but I don't think that you are like, you know, a a scholar. No, and I should tell you that, you know, if people happen to say, oh, how's Lainey? Or you're not doing the podcast? I'd be like, no, no, she's in Graceland. Or she's, you know, she went to Memphis. And they'd be like, really? She, Really? Like, your your Elvis thing, while, you know, documented, is not – it doesn't permeate necessarily what everybody thinks about you. That's, I, that's so weird because, like, I actually – You feel like it's clear and present. But in a way that, like, I probably know so much about Elvis that it's a little embarrassing. What is a comparable obsession of mine? Hamilton. No, that's too easy and also only a couple of years old. What else you got? Um, oh, um, Is it like my encyclopedic knowledge of Sister Act 2, for example? Perhaps, but I don't know that Sister Act 2 had quite the cultural impact of Elvis. Beg to differ. <laughs> Guys, we Elvis never... Presley. <laughs> Excuse me. Confidential to our friend D. Uh, Dee, can you get on the horn and clarify here? But no, it shaped an entire generation, but that's fine. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, Just because you weren't in the generation. Don't be jealous. That's another um, argument for another day. But here's what I wanted to bring back for you from Graceland. Thank you. So um, Elvis is amazing. Elvis, of course, had so many hits. But Elvis, when he died, was essentially broke. Uh, there's all kinds of controversy about his former manager, Colonel Tom Parker, you know, very controversial. Some people think that he completely took advantage of Elvis. Some people think that he really did have Elvis's interests uh, at heart, but he was just a terrible manager. Like in five words or less, where's the money supposed to be tied up in? Or where was it supposed to be tied up? There was no more. Like it was when he died, he was worth about a million dollars. I know. Like, why? And then and then half of that million was like he already owed in debt. But so why? I don't have specific figures, but for the most part, like all that money that he had earned over his career, gone. Okay. Interesting. Um, a lot of it had to do with the fact that his manager took like a 55% cut. Oh my God. Which that's amazing. The regular cut of what, 20 is already uh, very high, but is uh, like… Scandalous. Scandalous. Anyway, the point is, is that Elvis did not have a lot of money. The estate did not… No money. Right. And so what happened was, initially, the estate was left to his father and then to Lisa Marie, right? 
Okay. But then his father died about a year after Elvis died. So because at the time Lisa Marie Presley was still a minor, yes. her mother Priscilla yes. became the the boss of the estate. Right. Making, like I know who these people are. I've seen TV movies. That's right. So what Priscilla did was she decided to turn Graceland into what it is now. Right. In order to generate revenue. That's right. Okay. And so investments were made. Mm-hmm. With the remaining money, and probably loans were taken out, so they were even further in debt. And within four weeks of opening, all the investments were paid back. Four weeks? Are you actually being are you being facetious right now? Four no, weeks. Four weeks. Okay. Uh, within four weeks of opening, all the investments were paid back, and EPE, Elvis Presley Enterprises, began to make money. And now, as we know, it is the most visited home in America next so to the White House. So are you telling me that actually all of Elvis's money was made by Priscilla Presley? That's right. Now, this is <laughs> not unknown. Like, uh, most people do credit Priscilla for being the, the brains behind this and the fact that Elvis Presley's estate is so wealthy now. Most people do acknowledge that it was Priscilla. The reason I'm bringing this to you is because... While they acknowledge it, I don't think we've, I don't think that we in general have treated it with the masterclass respect that it deserves. No, I did not know this at all. And like, I often, I've heard recently of like a lot of people who, or a lot of references to like, I just want my wife to stay at home, raise the children and do the books for my business. And I'm like, sorry, What? No, that's bullshit. And also you can't have it both ways. Either you have somebody who stays at home and is not working. Not that that's not work, but who is not pursuing a professional pursuit. Or you have a goddamn accountant. How is that? Like, do we think that, was she a financial genius that we didn't know about? Uh, no. So they met when she was. I know. She was like, like. Like a child. Right. <laughs> she was a child in Germany and essentially, he brought her back to the U.S. with him after he got discharged from the Army. Mm-hmm. And she went to high school under his umbrella. So she lived at Graceland with him, yes. finished high school, and then became his bride and the mother of his child. So she has a high school education. And then she kind of just traveled with him and had his baby. And they would go on tour. And then they got divorced. And she was while they were married, slowly building her personality and like building her personhood to the point where she was like, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be married to you. She gets divorced, you know, and she does her own thing and then he dies. And then suddenly she becomes the CEO, essentially the CEO of what we know now. Like when I went, um, we stayed at uh, the guest house at uh, Graceland, which is a new facility, a new resort that's built on the Graceland property that just opened this year. So what happens is that you have this hotel, which is like a stone's throw away from the actual house, which is across the street from the entertainment complex, which they also own and that she built, or her vision, this was her vision, and Lisa Marie's. Lisa Marie has been the chairman of EPE for quite some time now, since she's like a proper, proper, proper adult. But they have this whole entertainment complex that houses his cars, his costumes, his army gear. Like, it is an Elvis museum. And all of that generates so much money that Elvis is rich. He's dead, but he's so rich. So much more rich than he was ever in his own lifetime. Even without the egregious mismanagement of his estate while he was alive. It's amazing, no? 
but I don't think enough people know about this story. Like you certainly, you, it sounds like you, you weren't as aware of all these details as, you know, I am, for example. No, like again, I watched the TV movie, but I was more interested in the terrible, terrible lines about, you know, when their marriage was dissolving. Yes. I'm looking at you right now with, I can't even describe the expression that I think is on my own face. Bewilderment, anger a little bit, frustration. Um. (laughs) And a a decent amount of skepticism. Like I also think, yeah, mm, okay, all right. Yeah, and that was Priscilla Presley. Um, Again, nobody disputes this. It's widely acknowledged. There's no way. I'm not arguing. There's nobody else except that, again, I don't think we revere it in a masterclass level way. The fact that she really has, my God, it's worth a lot of money. And yeah. my God, is it successful? Yes. Yeah. And and was it the, I guess it was the first of its kind, was it? Like, was there somewhere before that where it was like, get up close and smell and touch and taste your idol? I'm not sure that um, it was the first of its kind. Like, she had... Again, this is part of her work. In the days following his dad's death, when she took over, she she consulted with experts, right? right but so like, she brought in consultants, and those consultants had given her some statistics about other people who had passed away and the money that their estates were able to generate through certain things. And she said, fine, I'm taking this fucking gamble. Let's go. Right. But based on what? It's not based on Dollywood, Right? Like it wasn't based on like Buckingham Palace. You walk through a bunch of like anonymous rooms if there's a tour. I don't even know if there's a tour. You just stand there while your mother's like, watch the guard. He won't <laughs> laugh. So, hi, mom. I, I don't know if there was even a precedent for what she was deciding to do. Right? I understand you're saying she spoke to experts, but it was just a – like if what you're saying is true that it – had no precedent that it's not just that she made this great business decision. It's that she kind of intuited that people wanted to climb on top of, no pun intended, uh, the, the celebrity that they worship to a greater degree than anybody knew before that. Yeah. I mean, listen, it wouldn't have happened if Elvis didn't have this, uh, this fan base that was, obviously so upset and missed him so much. He was taken, like, I mean, he was 42. So essentially she gave him a second career in death. So 100%, she understood the appetite for it. But well, when I experienced the Elvis experience, um, and it's not, again, just the house, but it's that entire museum and it's um, everything that it's, that's been on display and painstakingly archived – it is such an impressive thing, and I don't know why she next door literally doesn't have her own business school. Like, there should be, like, a, how did all this happen? Step into these doors and take a master class in, like, how to run things like a fucking boss by Priscilla Presley. Um, it, yeah. My, my final thing, though, and I know you will appreciate this, is… I mean, we should check out what hour we are at in the podcast, because I could see how this could just become the the Elvis hour quite easily. But again, it's not about Priscilla, or sorry, it's not about Elvis. It's about Priscilla for me. Like, I thought about Priscilla just as much as I thought about Elvis when I was there, because I, you can't help but appreciate the scope of this thing. But I will say this, is that as sophisticated as Priscilla's business maneuvers are, and, you know, 
the exhibit and the experience is 95% perfect. And it's still newish. Like, again, I just told you the resort just went up and the experience itself is not old. Um, and they must still be working out the kinks. When I say that they're almost there, this is what I mean. I mean that they have clearly put the effort in to cataloging everything, to extracting every piece of Elvis memorabilia from his high school yearbooks to a, you know, a piece of paper he once wrote on to all of that. And yet there are sections that remain unlabeled. So you'll walk into an area of the exhibit that is devoted to his army life and there'll be shelves and shelves of notebooks and storage boxes and you won't know what you're looking at. I'm like, uh, was this what he used in the barracks? Uh, like, I, you know, I, I don't know what any of this is. not labeled. Right. The things that are labeled, for instance, when you walk through the section of the house that show his report cards or his high school photos, whatnot, there are typos all over the museum. Like, typos on plaques. So, like, what will happen is they'll show um, the deed to the house, Graceland. Right. And um, they'll have like a, a plaque that explains to you what this is. And it'll be like, the Presleys moved into this house in da, 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 19 blah, blah, blah. And Presleys, the Presleys moved into this house. Presleys will have an apostrophe in it. Oh, oh, I... And this happens over and over and over in various parts of the exhibit. For example, there's one part in the exhibit where other artists like Bruce Springsteen, John Lennon, or not John Lennon, sorry, Keith um, Richards, all kinds of like super mega famous musicians, their estates have, have put on loan certain artifacts from them as a tribute to Elvis. One of those tributes comes from Michael Bublé. Okay. So Michael Bublé has, you know, put out his tuxedo and a pair of shoes. And there is a quote about Michael Bublé and his um, respect for Elvis and how Elvis has informed his work. There's a fucking, and it, the letter is, the writing is in gold and it's like placked onto this thing. You can see how upset I am. And there's a fucking typo. Mm -hmm. Like um, it's missing an S for a plural word. And I was with Lorella, our friend, who's also like a grammar nerd. No, like, I mean, we're not grammar nerds, but we like things done well. I'm a grammar nerd. Great. I'm not going to get mad at that. No, 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 no. Like, like, you like, want it to be perfect. And so over, I can name you, like I, if I walked you through, we flew to Memphis today and I walked you through the exhibit, I could show you at minimum 15 to 20 examples of typos all over this exhibit. It makes me crazy. But you know, here's what's interesting about fandom. This is what kills me because you're right. I am not uh, an Elvis scholar. I have an appreciation at best. I, I could not engineer the passion you just uh, spat about for Elvis if like on a, you know, on a deathbed. But what kills me about that is that I immediately was not thinking about the, you know, the disrespect to the king that is, that results from all these typos, I started thinking about like, what's the story there? Who is their engraver? It's somebody who works in the family business and their family have been like plackers for their whole lives. 
and you know, it, uh, 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 Rodney the Placker is starting to get a little bad at his job, and soon Maisie Placker is going to come up and and take the reins from him, and she's going to have to run the business all on her own. And I'm picturing like a six feet under kind of thing, like in the shadow of Graceland, but it's this family story about this family of Plackers who you know, have been suffering with typos all their life and she's finally going to fix them. It might be a Pixar movie. I don't know. Um, but this is one degree of distance makes me think that's kind of charming instead of kind of, uh, you know, ill spelled. I, for me, it was the juxtaposition of the efficiency and the business acumen of someone like Priscilla Presley and then seeing that you're 99, 95% there. And this, all you have to do is close it, you know? And I'm not saying that this is Priscilla's error. I doubt it. I mean, look, she's already done all of this. I'm just saying that it feels, these are the small things that can turn this such an impressive effort on the part of the Elvis Presley estate and just leave it like, look, I have no regrets, obviously, about going to Graceland, but, (laughs) but it just, it just leaves me with like a, you know, can we go for perfection? But why? Like, because this is a museum. Like, Like, to me, when you attach the word museum to something, it implies a certain standard. But I guess that's why I think it, I'm going to get in trouble here. But I guess that's why it's funny to me because so much of what I know about Elvis is a punchline, right? Like that's so much of like when you talk about a museum, I can't help but think of every Elvis joke I learned from from The Simpsons and, uh, you know, 80s television. Like I I, I feel like they're, they're – I'm, I'm a, compelled to ask you about the silly parts of it. So – to me, that almost speaks to that, to the part of Elvis that it doesn't sound like that's what you saw there, but I feel as though that's what the non-rabid fans remember sometimes. Yeah, and I think to me that point sort of makes my point that, and I was just saying this to Yasik earlier today, it, it is true that when a lot of people remember Elvis, they think of the end Elvis you know, sweaty, bloated, he couldn't perform. Well, we weren't alive. Like, let's be real here. We were not around. There is a- You weren't alive. Well, okay, but you, look, I love you, but you were not alive for Elvis's great triumphs. No, I wasn't, but I, like, I existed on this earth at the same time that he did for for a few years. Fried peanut butter and (laughs) eggs. Like, that's the point. Like, the, that's the joke almost. Yeah, you're right. And- that's what I mean. I think that, like, people remember the end. And the goal of this museum is actually to, I think one of the goals should be to remind people that that was actually just a small part of his career. You know, most of his career, he was magic. Um, he was like a mega rock and roller. He was the king of rock and roll. People forget or they've not been exposed to the fact that this guy could rock out. Um, that James Brown would pay his respects to Elvis Presley, that Sammy Davis Jr. used to go to his shows, that this was a guy who everybody was like, who is that cat? Like, he's awesome. Sorry, no, you just said cat. Like, I don't know what's happening to you right now. I'm so, 
I feel like I don't know you. <laughs> when you read enough Elvis and you start referring to him in the way that like people referred to him then, like it's hard not to sort of borrow the, their language that they used. And so what I'm trying to say is the goal of this museum, they know, obviously they know that he became a punchline, but also it's to celebrate the fact that like he was a punchline for three years, let's call it. He died in 77 and he was like embarrassing from 73 or 74 to 77. But he came on the scene in 1955. So for 20 years, he was this awesome thing. And unfortunately, a lot of people just remember that guy that like, hey, thank you. Thank you very much. And whatever. Um, <laughs> why are you laughing? Because I don't know what's happening right now. I'm so confused. What do you, I guess. And so, yeah, like, you're right. Those mistakes illuminate that small part of his career. And to me, it's when you... When you want to make a museum that's dedicated to why he became the king of rock, a king of rock and roll, don't you want it to be closer to him at his peak to 1968? Okay, but those placards didn't make you love him any less, correct? No, they didn't make me love him any less. I, to me, it's just frustrating. It's about like execution. I know. You know, but you did and- this great thing, this beautiful museum, and you're just leaving a little thing hanging off. It's like buying a beautiful dress that's a, a few thousand dollars and they just didn't stitch the last part of it and the thread is hanging off the hem of the skirt. And you say to yourself, well, really? You couldn't just finish off this stitch? So then don't buy the dress. <laughs> I mean, I do think it's interesting because you're trying to talk about perfection and it's utterly unachievable overall. We agree? You can die trying, but you can't achieve perfect. And once you do, it's boring. I, I, I would say that you can't achieve perfect in that there are certain areas where, yes, you're not going to be able to control it. And sure, you'll make a mistake. These are such controllable errors. Like, I can't, I can't excuse why a placard would not know where to put an apostrophe or not include it in the first place. Okay, I don't know whether to give you a hug or like, or like, are you done? Are you going back? Is this a once in a lifetime thing or is this like? Oh, fuck yeah, I'm going back. Like, I'm so going back. I've now decided that I didn't go, like, I haven't, the one thing I haven't seen is an Elvis candlelight vigil. <laughs> I can't, guys, send help, please. I can't. Um, which I'm not going to bother explaining to you what that is, but I think I, I mean, have to I see know, one. I understand words. Like, because I didn't, like, I didn't see anybody crying and, like, throwing themselves on the ground and, like, <laughs> I just want to get, okay. Are You Lonesome Tonight? I also didn't see anyone at Graceland or at the museum dressed, like, with the big sideburns and dressed like Elvis. I think that... I, I don't know. I needed that to, comp- to complete something. I want to do this thing. I want to do that thing where we say we break the fourth wall. You know what that means and like address the audience for that, like, like sort of the pretense that we're doing a show. I get in a lot of trouble on this podcast for the position of my microphone or myself in, in comparison to the microphone, but I am going to spend the rest of this podcast slumped on my neck <laughs> because I cannot believe where we have come. And microphone and audio be damned. 
because I cannot believe that this is where we've made it. You haven't seen anybody crying, so you need to go back to Graceland. <laughs> Noted. Right. Yes. And someone who's an impersonator. Anyway, we can move on now. Right. Uh, next time you laugh at the origins of Lauren Hill in cinema form, I- I'll be here to go back to the 28 minutes we just spent on Elvis. Great. Welcome Elvis to our and Lauren podcast. Hill have lots in common, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Yasek! <laughs> you can leave all this in, Yasek, please. People need to hear the sound effects of her slumping over on the table in frustration and exasperation. Lauren Hill and Elvis were both late for shows. Anyway. Um, I just. <laughs> yes. On today's show. Great. Let's get to Elizabeth Banks. Yeah. This is one of those ones, uh, you know, when we talk about the show and the podcast and what might we talk about, uh, you always wonder if, like, will this story still float by the time we get to talk about the show? And I still am thinking about Elizabeth Banks a lot. I've been thinking about it for days. I've been talking about it for days. So Elizabeth Banks was at the Women in Film Crystal and Lucy Awards and was talking about, you know, her own sort of upbringing, watching films and wanting to see herself represented and women represented uh, and said... I went to Indiana Jones and Jaws and every movie Steven Spielberg ever made. And by the way, he's never made a movie with a female lead. Right. And then when this came out, people were like, uh, P.S., The Color Purple. So Steven Spielberg has had two of arguably his lowest grossing films uh, have had female leads. Uh, the Sugarland Express starred Goldie Hawn. Uh, the BFG uh, has a female lead. It's a child. And then, of course, as somebody yelled out in the audience, the color purple. And by various accounts, uh, when somebody shouted out the color purple, Elizabeth Banks sort of said, not my point, moving on, and moved on with her speech. What did you think when you read this first? Well, at first I was like, oh. When I first read that, I was like, oh, shit, because I thought of the color purple. And I was like, The Color Purple is not a small movie. It was Academy Award nominated. Um, and it's particularly relevant right now because Oprah's been out there campaigning for Oscar. And um, Oprah is famously, that was her first lead role. And oh, yeah. She played Sophia and she was, do you remember that? Like, that's something I can get. Almost, almost verklempt about. That was when you went, oh, Oprah is multifaceted. Oprah has more. Oprah is not just the lady on TV talking about, you know, the Oprah topics, which back then were not about remembering one's spirit. Well, I mean, if, if it's really interesting because The Color Purple actually came out before The Oprah Winfrey Show was syndicated. So she was that before most people in America got to see the show. Before, it was just in Chicago. Right. And so the reason why this might be more top of mind than it was 18 months ago is because um, Oprah's uh, performance in The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks is her first lead role since The Color Purple. So for me, personally, that's just been top of mind. So that was my first thought when I read Elizabeth Banks' comments. 
And, you know, of course, you've been watching this as as we have. So, of course, Elizabeth Banks has apologized. Uh, quote, when I made the comments, I was thinking of recent films Stephen directed. It was not my intention to dismiss the import of The Color Purple. I made things worse by giving the impression that I was dismissing Sherry Belafonte when she attempted to correct me. I spoke with Sherry backstage and she was kind enough to forgive me. But those who have the privilege and honor of directing and producing films should be held to account for our mistakes, whether it's about diversity or inaccurate statements. I'm very sorry, she wrote. Right. Which, you know, you said the other day that you were tired of having to praise people for their apologies, but that's a pretty complete apology. It was swift. It was not, I'm sorry if you were offended. She acknowledges that there are things to be offended for. And she, you know, pointed out her own wrongdoing without trying to shift the blame. Yeah, it was a good apology. Uh Uh-huh. So I have two questions. And the first is what you think will happen. Is she going to wear this? Well, you asked me what the first thing I thought of was. And that was the color purple. The second thing I thought of was, oh, fuck, she took out or she's taking on Steven Spielberg. Interesting. And that is, I mean, that's a big fucking deal. Um, You know, Steven Spielberg, I don't think I have to give you why it's a big deal here. Like, people tremble. Of course, of course. In his presence. And he's one of those juggernauts. And even though Steven Spielberg is like, a man who's kind of the personification of Hollywood imagination, you know, even though his projects are like sort of fill people with wonder and excitement, he's not known for suffering fools. Uh, You know, he's not known as like a bad guy or anything of the kind, but he's not a pushover. He doesn't just let anything happen. Um, you know, he's, he's, he's Steven Spielberg. Like he has been known to drop the hammer on people who offend him. So you would be well positioned to, you know, to, to point that out, you know? So, I mean, and Elizabeth Banks is a director, right? Like this is, she would do well, as you say, to be afraid, right? Yes. But here's the thing. And now I put myself in the strange position of, of not defending her, but having a different perspective. If I say, you know, E.T., who framed Roger Rabbit, or, uh, oh, Harry and the Hendersons, uh, you know, this is a really fun walk down Steven Spielberg's uh, IMDb here, Gremlins, uh, you know, the Twilight, they're, yeah, Gremlins, Twilight Zone, Goonies, like, those are Steven Spielberg movies, right? Yes. But there's a reason I think that I associated... uh, Oprah Winfrey as Sophia with like Oprah Winfrey, the talk show host. And that is, of course, that I watched the movie much later than when it first came out when I was old enough to do so. And that is, of course, after I had read the book. Right. And this is where we come to not that Elizabeth Banks is right. That's not what we're saying. But the color purple is Alice Walker's story. It is not Steven Spielberg's story in the same way. And I could see a world in which you could kind of raise an eyebrow at Steven Spielberg getting so much credit for Alice Walker's story, right? And I wonder whether 
I don't know. I find it interesting that the one, the sort of, you know, Steven Spielberg has three movies with female leads and two of them are acknowledged to be utter flops. And the one that isn't is somebody else's story. Steven Spielberg is not a writer in the way that, uh, that some writer directors are writer directors. He's not by all accounts, sitting down and sweating it out at the keyboard. He works with writers very closely and so forth. But, you know, she wasn't an unknown. It was a, it was a novel. It was a fantastic novel to begin with. And he took it and adapted it. And yes, um, right. I see your point there. I think though that like, uh, listen, I don't, I don't, put this as like one of those permanent marks on um, Elizabeth Banks in the sense of like, this is a delete your account moment. You know, it's, you know, she was making a larger point, which is not untrue about representation. She was talking about certainly his recent films. Um, I do think though that there are other targets and maybe that one was the wrong one to cite as an example, especially considering Steven Spielberg's body of work. Um, I know you listed, you know, E.T. and all the rest, but his body of work, of course, also includes Schindler's of List. Of course. And Amistad. Yep. Um, and so, like, if you want to target a brand name director, I would think that, like, Michael Bay would be, like, a better one. Or even, to me, I haven't been a fan of Scorsese recently. You know, like, I, and I think you too, uh, you know, I hated The Wolf of Wall Street. Like, I, I wanted to hate The Wolf of Wall Street. I did not hate that movie. Uh, I found parts of it entertaining, despite myself. Yeah. <laughs> okay. B but I mean, like, the fact that you had to qualify it in the sense of, like, despite yourself. Like, it's not, to me, I think that Martin Scorsese makes that movie in particular was a certain glorification of a thing that I'm over. That's fine. Um, but and we don't so, want to get to whataboutism either, right? Like, sure. Nobody is more powerful than Steven Spielberg. Her point was, yo, Steve, make a movie about a woman. The fact that she erased the color purple and the women therein. Uh, and of course, the color purple wasn't just about Oprah. Whoopi Goldberg was phenomenal in the color purple. There was how many Oscar wins for the color purple? Well, I think that's one of the things about the color purple is that it was nominated a lot and it didn't get like it didn't win a lot. Nominated for 11 Oscars. You're right. And it didn't. I mean, I can't remember. Like, I don't think it won. No, I think that's the, yeah. the, the issue here. Yeah. yeah. No, it won a Golden Globe for Whoopi Goldberg for Best Performance. But in terms of Oscar, it won zero. That's right. So, yeah, like I, I, I get what you're saying where you want to go for like a big name and someone who has had impact. I just, like I said, I don't know that that was the best choice. I think that there are other big names. Like if you want to go for Blockbuster, if you want to go for Opportunity – uh, there are many, many more. Sure. And I guess, though, that the argument, and again, I'm not trying to sit here and defend, but then the argument, say I was in this position, uh, you know, the argument is, well, you don't expect anything of Michael Bay. You don't expect him to do any better. 
you know, when you say, oh, you know, do better, Elizabeth Banks, you expect Elizabeth Banks to do better because we like her and she's smart and that kind of thing. Uh, we don't have those same expectations of lesser, less interesting directors. But here's, go on. Yeah, but I just don't think you go after that one, especially since like he is right now working on a film with Meryl Streep. And that's about Catherine Graham, you know, the female publisher of the Washington Post during the Pentagon Papers and Watergate. Like, that's a great story. And it's a great story about a woman. I get it. But also, like, again, here we are. Like, are we going to pat him on the back for doing one movie about a woman in, you know, in the last No, but are we going to pat her on the back for not making a point that just lands for its point and makes more of a headline for her apology? No, I don't disagree that she did not make the point she set out to make. I don't disagree with that. Uh, And yet, I feel like it's okay to say I wish people who were as prolific, as successful did more, which of course is not what she said. But here's my real question. She said what she said. She is somebody who I expect to do better because I think she's interesting and and I like her perspective and I want to be watching things that she directs even though they have been piecemeal so far. So, okay, if you make a grand blunder, then what? What do you do? How do you get out of it? Well, I mean, you work your way out of it, and that's what I love. What's interesting to me is you make a grand blender about this particular issue, so now you have a target on your back. Oh, yeah. Now you got to put your money where your mouth is. That's right. So the target on her back is her next project, probably the most highly publicized next project, is a reboot of Charlie's Angels. Yeah. So she's up on a stage at the Crystal Awards, And she's talking about women in film and putting women in front of the camera and behind the camera. And she's talking about representation. And now she has the opportunity to reboot, you know, a brand, an entertainment brand, an entertainment franchise that is all women. But that was not always, you know, about like, I don't know how often it passed the Bechdel test. Maybe fairly often, depending on how often they were mentioning Charlie. Yeah. I mean... I'm, I won't ever, like, I'm not going to shit on the first one with uh, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and Lucy Liu. Like, I, that was, that movie was just so fun to me, and um, I quite enjoyed it. That said, it was directed by McGee. Yeah. So now we've got that movie in a reboot directed by Elizabeth Banks. Awesome. Rumors are that the, the, the actor that the studios want the most, who's at the top of the list, is Janelle Monet. Good God, thank you. Yes, please. Amazing. And that happened before Elizabeth Banks' problem, apology, whatnot. But again, when we go back to working your way out of a mess, she has an opportunity. This is a golden one. Have I not taught you yet when it's appropriate to, like, sing a Hamilton quote? Like, I really expected you to talk about, I wrote my way out there. That's really (laughs) where I thought this might go. Um, but you know, I, I, I agree with you that that's sort of where you put your focus. You put your head down and, and get out of it that way. And nobody doesn't make mistakes. I love a website about work that I've mentioned a lot called Ask a Manager. And I would say that 40% of the questions on that website are, I made a mistake. I made a big blunder, often an embarrassing one. How do I get out of it? And that is always the answer. The answer is 
take stock, acknowledge that you did a dumb thing, push forward. Like the worst thing you can do is wallow in it, is be the kind of person who apologizes on talk shows about it for the next seven months, is, you know, sort of cower or not face up to it. We have criticized Jimmy Fallon on this podcast for making a mistake, doing a thing that ultimately doomed the free world, but whatever, um, that ultimately was not ideal in turning Donald Trump into a cuddly person, uh, and then hiding when everybody was mad at him. So there's a lot to be said for don't hide, get out in front of it, and then don't dwell on it. I have been guilty of this in the past. If you make a mistake to keep apologizing and to keep saying, I'm sorry and I'm sorry and I know that I'm not going to do it again and I and I know that the last time I did a project I made a mistake, but here's my project with no mistakes. And, oh my God. Just stop. You made the mistake. It's over. It is finished. And then you go on making the next thing, which is not a mistake, a thing that you intend to do. We hope. Yep. Go for it, Elizabeth Banks. Charlie's Angels, Janelle Monet, don't delete your account. We're not deleting you. No. You sound a little more skeptical than I than I thought you might, though. About Elizabeth Banks? Mm. No, I'm I to me it wasn't like again. Pete, there are people who are have done worse. Absolutely. But worse, better, whatever. The point is you pick yourself up again. You have to. Yep. And she will. Of course you will. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a, here's a question then. Speaking about, you know, doing what you do, this is the, this is the refrain we keep coming back to here, right? About like, uh, do you do things that are specific? Do you do you? And is that a cheesy phrase that means that you just have to go and like, uh, uh, what did you and Sasha decide that it meant like, do you, right? Like, yeah. like, do you, uh, I think you thought meant like, you don't have to worry about anybody else or really have anything to do or so forth. Right. I think it was in the context of Drake. Um, when Sasha and I talked about it on her podcast and we were giving someone advice and we we're like, just do you. But I was like quoting Drake lyrics. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Every, but there like, was a- Fair amount of skepticism there. <laughs> but of course, it's interesting that you bring up Drake because this is where we go next. Uh, so I was uh, really interested in the video for the weekend's new uh, track, Secrets, which, by the way, samples the awesome talking in your sleep, which is an earworm that I love. And Tears for Fears. Like, there's two samples from the 80s in that song. It's amazing. It really is, which maybe is why it's most resonant. So if you have not watched this video, please call it up as we speak. Uh, And you don't even have to listen necessarily right now, but watch and know that what we are looking at is the Toronto, the 
And know that what we are looking at is the Metro Toronto Reference Library. It is the biggest downtown branch of the Toronto Library. Uh, It is exactly as red carpeted as it looks. Those elevators are the way they are. Uh, The like Foldy origami couch is not there. But other than that, that's pretty much what you see is what you get. Yes? Yes. And if, I mean, in my experience, most people who grew up in and around Toronto have spent some time studying or not studying at the reference library. Oh, 100%. The biggest difference between my experiences in that library and this video is the absence of backpacks. Like just the absence of like dirty backpacks swinging around every available visual space. Yeah. Like I used to study there in university and in high school or I should specify not study, like it's as much of a place to study as to go and say you're studying and then not focus and fuck around. And like, let me just set the scene here. There are all kinds of study tables in public places and not. There are silent studies. Did you know that there are like pneumatic tubes that you can book and study in silence, but you're in a glass tube so everybody can see you? Yes. There are private rooms. We've been to private events there. There are, you can get married there if you want to. There are definitely stacks where people hook up. Uh, When I was there not too long ago, uh, a year or so ago, and doing some work, there were some teenagers talking about really, really shocking things that were going to happen that night at a party. And they weren't even trying to be quiet around me. And I realized it's because, you know, adults are furniture. To teenagers, yep. like, you may as well not exist. I remember being removed from the reference library at least twice for that exact thing. Like, talking, being shushed, and then not shushing, and then being asked to leave. I thought you were going to say, like, for, for like, planning orgies among the stacks, <laughs> because, like, I, yeah, anyway. But the reason why we're talking about it like this is because, or at least maybe the reason I'm talking about it like this is because that library looks a certain way in your memories, and then you know, what he's done with this video is presented it in an entirely fresh way. Like, holy shit, The weekend just made, like, the reference library where we've gone, I don't know how many times, like, a really cool space. Um, and there's also York University, which is in the north part of Toronto and is sort of well-known for being a shocking cinder block wasteland. I love you, York University. Uh, or not, I did not attend there, uh, is also in the video. And so what I wanted to talk about was this idea of, you know, The weekend is, of course, from Toronto. We noticed this because he's from Toronto. And he follows in the footsteps of one Aubrey Drake Graham, who has made a career, or should I say like a mega career, out of celebrating Toronto in a way that nobody ever did before. Like, I can't think who I think the most famous person from Toronto might have been before Drake, but they weren't that from Toronto. Like, for example, we are genetically engineered with the ability to list off every Canadian celebrity that there is, but I can't think of anything, say, Jim Carrey has ever said about Toronto or uh, gosh, I don't know. Uh, Matthew Perry (laughs) lived in Ottawa for a year. I don't know. No, he's, Matthew Perry is legit Canadian. Uh, Jason Priestley, Jason, Jason Priestley's from Vancouver. So is Pamela Anderson. 
you know, it's 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 it hasn't happened before now, right? That this was Toronto for Toronto's sake. And I asked you, are there other celebrities who have done this for their own hometowns? Well, I mean, I think that um, when you're from like, and you're talking about like outside New York and LA, or are you? Well, the thing is everybody celebrates New York and LA. Like you can choose who you think presented New York as an amazing place for you to love and want to live in, whether it's if you're a Woody Allen person or an Alicia Keys person or a like a, a When Harry Met Sally person. Like there, you can take your pick. I'm thinking more about the fact that for reasons I'll never understand, I know that Renee Zellweger was from Katy, Texas. Right. Mainly because that's an unusual place to be from, well, maybe. maybe it's because I just got back from there, but I think Beyonce does a lot of Houston love. Um, yeah, I'll agree with that. She absolutely does. Like Parkwood. Specifically Parkwood Lane for her, Parkwood Drive, uh, yeah. where she grew up. Yeah. And then park like there's the park, Parkwood Park too. I mean, like she's done a lot of shooting in Parkwood um, on self-titled. There are several references to um, Third Ward, which yeah. is all Houston. Um, so I-, I would say that like, I don't think that anybody uh, – forgets that Beyonce is from Houston, which is a, a, like an interesting Drake link because after Toronto, I would say that Drake, well, before he was spending a lot of time in Houston. Oh yeah. His, his, on his mixtape, uh, which was the predecessor to, uh, the album on which he broke through, uh, there's a track called Houston Lana Vegas, like implying that he was sort of doing them in a loop. So there's that. I mean, like, and listen, Beyonce is such a, like, Beyonce is Beyonce. So I feel like, is it one of those things where um, she's so big that, of course, we kind of know everything about her? Like, uh, do we associate, oh, here we go. Here's another one that I'm thinking about. This is, like, obviously, uh, I'm just talking out loud, thinking out loud. Uh, Eminem in Detroit. Yeah, I'll buy that, right? Because yeah. 8 Mile, which if you was not Eminem's first, it was not his breakthrough, but it was the one that if you didn't know, what does that mean? It's kind of an odd name. Yeah. Uh, 8 Mile became everything you need to know. It was autobiographical. It was kind of his anthem in a way that previous uh, tracks had not been, like in a way that Slim Shady tried to be and wasn't. Uh, so yeah, sure, I buy that. And, and to go back to Elvis, everyone associates Elvis in Memphis. Like I don't think that, I don't think that that is like you don't ever think of Elvis as Hollywood. Elvis is all has always been of Memphis by way of Tupelo, Mississippi. Yeah, and look, there are lots of um, there are lots of geographical associations. Uh, you know, boy bands in general come from. Florida? Orlando, Florida, of course, which is where the Mickey Mouse Club was taped, which is why yeah. that was the case. Although, interestingly enough, Justin Timberlake is from Memphis. I mean, I can't even believe I said that without choking, but… But, okay, but not, though, because let's just be real here. Like, if you're on the Mickey Mouse Club when you are 10 years old or however old he was, maybe this is, of course, all about… Because I was going, I was listening to that and I was like, and Britney Spears is from… Kentwood, Louisiana, and she loves to talk about how she's a small town girl. But Toronto is not a small town. Toronto is, in case you didn't know, Sarah, <laughs> it is the fourth largest city in North America 
after LA, New York, and Chicago. And it is sometimes, it's sometimes, you know, it's kind of shocking the way that people don't know a lot about Toronto. When you are Canadian, but especially when you are Torontonian and sort of growing up in a metropolis, uh, it feels a little bit surprising that people don't know about what is a really, really large city the way they know about uh, London or Paris or, you know, all the New York or even, even Houston or Atlanta, those kinds of things. And then people in the next breath go, yeah, but Toronto is not, is not LA. Toronto is not London. And so what we're talking about here is two people, maybe more, who have made a career out of celebrating Toronto. Uh, I would not say that The weekend has tied himself to Toronto quite as closely as Drake has, but Drake made it okay for him to do so. And for Alessia Cara, whose uh, Wild Things video is shot in uh, suburban Brampton, Ontario, home of Alessia Cara, Michael, Sarah, and myself. Uh, <laughs> oh, no, you're forgetting Russell Peters. And Russell Peters, uh, the most successful comic that nobody knows about. Yep. Uh, and... You know, it's a it's a new thing for us. So here's question number one is, do we, are we interested in this from other artists? You know, like I know that, for example, there are, uh, you know, there are a lot of British and Irish artists, for example, are just vaguely like, yeah, yeah, no, I'm from, and people say awful geographical things to them. They get so confused. They're like, oh, so you're from London. And the person who's from Glasgow is like, no, actually. But they just sort of put up with it and deal. Uh, actually, I think about train spotting, uh, putting Edinburgh on the map in a way that we hadn't seen before. But it's not exactly celebratory. Uh, we don't see this a lot. We don't see sort of celebrating your hometown if, as you say, your hometown is not a previously approved cool place like New York or Chicago. So A, is this a move? Is this a thing you can do? Or is it a thing that like we're used to Americans doing it? Like I feel like Americans are very good about when they land in LA or New York and they hit fame, they're like, but you know what? My heart belongs to Virginia. Or but you know what? I'm just a Midwest, Missouri, is Missouri in the Midwest? Uh, yeah. yeah. I'm just a Missouri boy at heart, you know? <laughs> and I... You know, not to knock Canadian superstars, but kind of like they wear their Canadianness, yes, but it's not specified. It's Canada. It's not like, hey, I'm just still, you know, a boy from the prairie, Saskatchewan. Um, it's not like, oh, I'm just, you know, from the East. I'm a Maritimes girl. It's just Canada. And you're talking about the megastars. You're talking about the, the, the 20 millionaires, James Cameron, Jim Carrey. Other people named James or Jim. Sure. Um, like, it's it's a blanket Canada-ness. Right. As opposed to the way I feel like Americans do it, where they zero in on the state and sometimes right down to the city and county. And I'm just thinking about, uh, you know, in, in trying to do a North American map, I can play... When you said Virginia, I immediately thought... Jennifer Garner's from West Virginia. There you go. When, you know, are you Which is, we know is different from Virginia, but yes, like, I, I mean, know. it was the trigger of Virginia, the word. Yes, yeah. exactly. Or like, I think about, uh... John Hamm. Where's he from? 
Oh, I don't know. Connecticut? St. Louis. St. Louis? Yeah. Curtis Sittenfeld is from St. Louis. Well, I mean, and this is the thing. Like, I feel like, you know, we can, all these stars, we can, a lot of them we can identify. Julia Roberts. Oh, Smyrna, Georgia. There you go. (laughs) Anna Kendrick. Um, New Jersey. Ah, Portland, Maine. Oh, okay. However, there's like a metric ton of celebrities from New Jersey. Okay. Like you could write a book about the celebrities from New Jersey. Well, the biggest one being Bruce Springsteen, I think. Sure. Right? Yeah, sure. And then we could Billy go Crystal. George Clooney, Kentucky, right? Yeah, I believe so. Anyway, we should stop playing this game because people are going to turn this off. No, no, no. They're gone already. They were gone for Elvis. <laughs> now they're back. They're like, okay. Okay, um, here's my yeah. thing. Sometimes when I'm procrastinating, I play a game call, uh, on sporkle which is a quiz website and when i'm trying to think about like a story point or something uh there's a thing where can you name all the 50 states like how fast can you do it and they have you on a timer or sometimes all the state capitals and again please remember i am not american i'm born and raised in canada right and i can usually do 50 in two minutes i'm going to propose uh that uh we can study up but next episode of the podcast we're gonna uh have Somebody watching it, and I think we should do the Laney Gossip Challenge. Can you name a celebrity from all 50 states uh, and certain European countries or territories? Yeah. Do politicians count as celebrities? No. Not for our purposes. We are talking about film, music, or television. Send us in your choices. If you have somebody for, you know, Sweden or Luton, uh, stand I was trying to think of Alaska, but I think Jewel, right? Yeah. 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 And Sarah Palin, which… Well, that's why I asked I about know. the politicians. But I know, I think- but I feel like you could get uh, the 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 Palin family on a technicality because they did a reality show, right? And I guess what our point is is that, like, I mean, I I I think that like for a lot of American celebrities, again, and I guess maybe because Hollywood is so America centric, you just like if you said you know, hi, Jennifer Garner, where are you from? And she said, oh, the U.S. People would be like, duh, like where? No, Wheeling, West Virginia. You you zero in. Whereas like if you have a Jim Carrey and it's like, oh, hey, Jim, where are you from? Canada. It's almost enough. It's not like where in Canada. But I mean, and I hate to belabor this point, but I'm gonna, um, you know, I feel like in previous generations, it was not even, oh, I'm from Canada, but it was, I was born in Canada, but I got here as quick as I could. You know, there's that sentiment that sometimes you you hear about from certain Americans, Sarah, where, you know, there's a bit of a pat on the head. Oh, that's okay, Canada. Oh, cute. Get, you'll get your training wheels off soon. No yeah. problem. Uh, you know, but it also, that's from the, us looking in from the outside. The other thing is that from the inside, there can be a lot of criticism to uh, big up where you're from in the way that we're talking about uh, Drake and The weekend having done, right? Uh, and you were referencing somebody interesting having talking, having talked about it recently, about as different from Drake as, as you can think of. Uh, you were telling me about Naomi Watts. Yeah, Naomi Watts um, is from Australia. And she, in a recent interview, she was talking about tall poppy syndrome. And it's actually come up a few times recently in the news, and we've kind of referenced it on the blog. Um, if you don't know. Yeah, go for it. Oh, if Explain. you don't know, uh, tall poppy syndrome, of course, is that the one tall poppy who grows higher than the others uh, in the poppy field, how's my metaphor, 
uh, you know, is likely to be plucked, to be cut, to be uniform with all the others because you can't have one be out of line, which right. is to say, uh, you know, often there, here I go getting in trouble on all the sides, uh, but there's a sentiment that if you are a Canadian who sort of has immense success or, you know, is sort of successful beyond the borders, and I think the same is often said to be true of uh, Australia or New Zealand or et cetera, that people can kind of look at you like, well, who do you think you are? Well, who, well now who are you? Oh, now you think you're a big deal? Like there's a, there's an effort to kind of undercut who they are. And I think that that's what Americans are very good at. Like tall poppy syndrome is not associated with America. No. It's associated with Australia. It's associated with Canada. Um, it's not associated in the place where the stars are made and they, you know, arguably can get as big as they ever can. I mean, this is the thing, right? When we talk about the entertainment industry, there's the biggest zenith of the entertainment industry is in the United States. It is sort of the final market to crack. And there are all kinds of cultural and historical reasons why, and it's fascinating, and we should get a historian on here. Um, but they'll have to play our quiz, though. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, it's a thing that comes up. And you actually said it wasn't just Naomi Watts, but uh, another Australian. Right, and Rebel Wilson. Right. And, and sort of what was the comment there, that they sort of learned to deal with it or to work around it? Well, I mean, it had to do, of, of course, with this lawsuit that she had won – uh, just last week, and um, it was a lawsuit against uh, Australian tabloids, and she kind of attributed it to, you know, they were printing horrible things about me, and it has to do with tall poppy syndrome. You know, I got big in America, I, um, you know, I have been all in all these movies, and then they were like, well, let's find some dirty shit on Rebel Wilson and remind her where she's from and who she is, and that no matter how of like how many movies she does over in America that, you know, she's still just one of us. Right. But what's so interesting about that is that it's not just to cut down Rebel Wilson. It's because now Rebel Wilson is a big enough star to sell the magazines. They put shit about her on the front because she'll sell the magazine. It's amazing. It's incredible. But you know, what is interesting is that Drake, who is sort of the leader of the Six Movement, um, I mean, he created that, right? Yeah. And that was a thing. Uh, if you don't know, the six is a reference to the inner Toronto area code 416. And people, and also people who have the like lesser Toronto area code 647 are like, no, it's ours too. Um, but people laughed and then they used it. And now everybody yeah. says the six all the time. Well, and he has not ever been a victim of tall poppy. Like, I don't remember any sort of oh, Drake, sit your ass down. Who do you think you are from here? In fact, I'm pretty sure that, like, Canada is all about Drake. See, I would argue that I think there was in the early days, but it didn't stop him from acting like a rapper, for lack of a better term, for doing what, uh, as you point out, sort of Jay-Z and Eminem and uh, other uh, kind of stars had done before him and talking about their hometowns and the places that made them in just as important a way. 
Is that why though? Because he got tall and was like, hey, but I'm still the six and Toronto, 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 Toronto all the time. Like, is that what could have prevented Rebel Wilson from getting tall poppy syndromed if like in every other interview or in every movie that she did, she had to like run a line about Australia or where she's That's from? That's interesting. I mean, it's it's two different things, right? Because one is uh, kind of a trick of a particular type of like like you say like that's a it's a something that happens in rap and R&B that doesn't happen for various movie actresses right it's not a thing that you're asked all the time so talk about your hometown like see how that made you uh so that's really interesting uh and you're also saying did he evade tall poppy syndrome because he was too busy saying how great we are all the time right and so to tall poppy syndrome him would be like do you really want him to shut up about how great he's from and Right, and how great we are as a result. So, okay, so here's the question, though. What's that term that you use when you're making fun of me for for liking sports and for, like, celebrating the Blue Jays when there was something to celebrate? In sports, we call that a homer. Like, you know. I was green enough that I thought that this meant, like, home run. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe that's the origin of it. But, yeah, a homer is someone who's, like, super, super standing hard for their team all the time to the point of like they can't see anything bad. Okay. So is this what we're talking about? Is this sort of the entertainment world of Homerism? Yeah, a little bit. And I I don't know if like it's also we being from Toronto, you know, and Canada, oh, cute little Canada where this is just exciting for us. You know what I mean? Like, I, I wonder if certain Americans are listening to this being like, Jesus, they sound like, like they, this is a small town attitude. Like to, <laughs> to have this talk and be so excited about this is because, well, this never happens for you guys. So congratulations. But, you know, we churn out our stars all the time over and over again. It's really no big fucking deal. Right. And I mean, I think what, uh, What's interesting there is I don't think so because I think whatever small town you're from, I bet you know exactly which celebrities are from there and you can't help but mention it, right? Like every time you you see them in a movie or whatever, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, Matthew McConaughey is totally from – where is he from? I was fully expecting you to Texas. jump in there. There we go. <laughs> Do you have a town? Town in Texas? Crawford, I think. I'm going to give us two weeks to uh, assemble our game, and we're going to have the game. I'm going to make Yassick a referee, buzzers and all, uh, and you can send us your celebrity nominations for uh, every town and state a celebrity, and we'll we'll sort of name all the towns and the, the hometowns that deserve to be famous. Oh, it's not Crawford. It's Uvalde, Texas, residence, Austin. Um, but, um, what, no, but what I was trying to say about like the small town acting like you're from a small town is that I go back to the beginning of this conversation where you talked about how Toronto is a big town, you know, it's bigger than Chicago. And I'm not sure that the residents of New York and Chicago and LA and whoever, um, are jumping up and down every time they produce a star. So I wonder if we are small town at heart living in a big city. Yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's very fair. And like small town at heart living in a big country, you know, like I think that's everybody sort of you do that thing where no matter who you are and where you meet a Canadian, you're like, oh, do you know so-and-so? Because like chances are decent. Uh, but 
we're bigger than that. We're so big that we have a big library that's in a big video, you guys. And 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 like like big big celebrities are are celebrating different parts of our town. I don't think this is making your case. But that's kind of what I'm trying to mock a little bit. Is like this is a preposterous way to is a preposterous way to to be, and yet you can't stop the tiny little thrill that goes through you. And finally, uh, we end with an article that you sent me that amused me so much uh, because this is the headline from Variety: TV outpaces Oscar campaigning with more content to promote than ever. So, okay, fine. You know, there's lots of stuff to talk about here and uh, and Emmy nomination considerations are in full swing and so forth. But that also reads as the most uh, high-class problems headline that I think we've read to date, certainly on this show. Right. I mean, I sent it to you because we're in the age, and it mentions this in the article of peak TV, right? Which a term I know we have to get over and give me a new one and I'll start using it. Well, this is the thing though. There's a phrase partway through this article that says it's the crush of peak TV. This is not like, there's so much good stuff now. It's, It's now people being shocked that, wait, with the, remember there was a thing a few years ago that, that people, my mother would say like, there's 300 channels and nothing on. Remember that? Yes. Like now there's 300 channels and everything, everything is on is on and everything is amazing. And so this article is about uh, nominations for the Emmys are due in uh, three weeks or so. Uh, second week of July. And so right now the television academy voters have to narrow down what their nominations are going to be. And every network... Uh, is spending lots of money, in particular Amazon and Netflix are leading the way, sending screeners out, buying billboards, buying ad space, everything that they can do to make sure their shows are nominated, they're doing. And so for some of the voting body, they will get home and they'll come home to like 50 screeners. Right. And sometimes those are actual physical screeners and sometimes they are, you know, uh, uh, digital sort of files and things. The thing that's most interesting is if you're a voter for the Oscars or I guess for the Grammys, like you have X number of films to watch. But if you're a voter for uh, the Emmys, there are X number of shows, but they always include like a selection of episodes. No show ever just includes one episode because that's not the point of TV. So there's a lot to watch as everybody says. Oh, there's too much to watch. You know, I was at something recently, and I may have already said this, where we stopped talking about, oh, no, I want to watch that show, and just started saying, yeah, I heard that show was good. I might watch it, like, if I had time, but I don't. Like, just acknowledging you're never going to get there. And it's interesting, too, because typically, or not typically, at the Emmys, one episode is nominated, you know, especially for an ongoing series. They'll say... Uh, nominated for, for example, in a director category or whatnot, they'll have like that one episode. Well, that's different because directors direct certain episodes. That's I right. was surprised the other day that somebody talked about this that didn't know this, that uh, for a TV uh, season, you will have a writing staff of writers who stick around for the whole season. Uh, and different names may be on different episodes and different shows divide them up in certain ways. But those people, largely speaking, are around the whole time. The directors, on the other hand, with some exceptions, come in, 
do their episode, they do their eight, you know, eight days of prep and eight days of shoot and back out. And that's it. Uh, there's not a whole lot of, you know, so they get their one episode to nominate. But, uh, but yeah, as a body of work, the show is a show. That's right. So you've got that one episode that you have to watch for the directing category. Then you've got like your three or four that well, you one watch. times ten nominees. That's right? right. And then you've got your three or four that you have to watch for each of the performances. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, when you get to the series and you should watch, I don't know how many, what, four or five to get the flavor? Sure. But say you hate them and you've already watched some for the director and you're not interested or the lead actress or whatever, you're not watching them and you're bored and you're skipping around and there's so many and half of them you start cheating on or learning what you know from people who like them or going like, oh, I've never heard of that. Like, which? From where? And it can seem like work. It can seem overwhelming. Well, to go back to the Oscars, there was a really famous quote, I think it was from Samuel L. Jackson a few years ago, where he was like, "Uh, there are so many movies to watch and I can't do it all. So I just left it for my babysitter slash housekeeper slash whatever, to fill out the ballot. And so I wonder, are we getting into the same situation with Television Academy voters um, where the advertising and the money that is being spent by certain networks with the billboards and bombarding people with just awareness is going to get through to those ballots rather than good old-fashioned watching? But even then, like good old-fashioned watching, I don't know whether it would be too fragmented or only network-based or what. Uh, Here's my most interesting quote from the article. It reads, "Uh, The tradition of booking events and screenings at the TV Academy's North Hollywood headquarters has become a pain with escalating parking contracts and catering bills and expensive pain. Uh, From April through the beginning of voting last week, so mid-June, Every single night was booked for, with a for-your-consideration screening. Quote, that has never happened before, says uh, an important person who is being quoted here. Uh, the competitive crush and the limitations of space have led some shows to hold major events, uh, like This Is Us did this, hold their events off-site at the Cinerama Dome. So imagine you are a voter and you are a semi-social person who goes out with friends or significant others or whatnot once every two weeks. And then three nights of the week, you are tired because we're all tired. So that means that every single night there are invitations coming at you. Come, come and watch uh, Good Girls Revolt and vote for it. Come and watch Veep. Come and watch Orange is the New Book. Come and watch Catastrophe. You should actually watch Catastrophe, guys. It's spectacular. Watch Master of None. Watch Kimmy Schmidt. Watch Good News. Watch, like, Saturday Night Live. Watch the news. Don't forget to vote in the news categories. Watch a documentary feature that was on HBO. Like, it's dizzying. Watch Ryan Murphy's exorbitant amounts of television that he made while you were sleeping. Like, it's shocking how much TV there is. I don't know what the answer is, though, because the thing about that you said about peak TV implies, well, you can just only watch the good stuff and that's okay. That's like where you can kind of skim the top of the crop and be okay. But, you know, as you say, it's all kind of good. And it's been really exciting as things from unusual places like Jane the Virgin, for example, have gotten a lot of attention or Orphan Black. 
uh, you know, things that don't seem like they're going to get the the high-profile attention uh, start to be seen by more people because nobody can see it all. It's leading to a more egalitarian awards, maybe. But I don't know what the solution is. I don't know. I'm not worried about a solution right now. In fact, I'm, I'm, I'm not worried about a solution right now because all I can think of, like the first thing I thought of when I read this article and sent it to you was, well, you know, we have been talking about, quote, PTV for what, two or three years now. And I'd say eight or nine, like since the beginning of Mad Men. But the, the term PTV has been like, it's had its moment for about two or three years now, like where it's a generally accepted thing that most people who watch TV will know the term peak TV. Right. And we've also seen the rise of TV in prestige. Not only the quality of prestige TV shows, sure. but the rise in TV in terms of its prestige level as opposed to film. Whereas we talk about this all the time, TV has always been the poor cousin to film. And it's really, it's these kinds of examples where we're seeing that the networks are outspending on campaigns than film, than the major motion picture studios. That's kind of cool but to I, me. I guess so. But like, look, the TV critics and the TV writers and the people who have been in it the whole time have been like, yeah, no shit. We've been here. Okay. You get to wear that crown. Like, be happy. Like, put it on. Yeah, I yeah, see yeah. you, like, you know, rise up in sanctimony and like, what have you been, we've been telling you. But the point is, is that you've been telling, but nobody was listening but until I recently. But as you say, we've been talking about this for seven or eight or five or three years now. Like now, okay, so we're done. So great. It's good. So now what are you going to do about it? So now this is the new landscape where everything is amazing and nothing in the cinema is worth going to see. So what? If we talk about peak, it implies a fulcrum. Do you like my science term? It, it implies a tipping point. So now what? Money is the tipping point, Duanna, is what my point is. When they're actually talking about when they spend more campaigning for a certain award, yes. more than the Academy Award, that is your tipping point. But so what? So what do you want to, like, and? We can't get back to, so are we talking about TV becomes fragmented and there's not things that everybody watches? Okay, we're there. Are we talking about what does the prestige lead to? If if I take your model and say, sure, TV uh, vaulted the top of the top to film success, to international stardom in uh, in other venues, well, now this is the bigger success, right? Uh, so then what? Then, then more TV. You know, if you are, say, Elizabeth Moss, who is highlighted in this article as like, oh, I'm part of the, you know, a, basically that she's a front runner for an Emmy for obvious reasons. Uh, but it's like, okay, so what happens if she gets that? Well, she gets to be more successful. She gets to be more of a producer and she gets to do more things like amazing. That's great. That's huge. But it's more TV. It turns into more and more and more. So more genres. Is this what happened to kind of YA literature? Where, where do you hope that we go? I guess is my question. Well, my first thing that I hope is I want to see that headline where um, instead of X actor gets paid $20 million per picture, I would love to see the headline X actor is offered $40 million to do an HBO series. Sure. 
And that's what I mean about the tipping point. When they're actually spending to advertise and they're seeing, like the industry is seeing, oh, our budgets are yielding more on the television side than on the film side. So you're saying that you think that the paycheck is what's going to indicate like a shift. I hate to be the one who's like, money is everything. But in this industry, as we know, that's the language. I don't know. I'm really interested in that. I'm not sure I think so because, you know, yeah, who has more and better press right now than Elizabeth Moss, for example? Uh, and it, and there's no movie actress who can who can kind of compare at this time. Right now. Right the, now. The only person who has more press on the Emmy circuit than Elizabeth Moss is Nicole Kidman. Even then, I sort of, I go, I don't know. That to me, I sort of go, okay, but that's just an easy headline because she's Nicole Kidman, so it sells a headline. But it's interesting to me that Nicole Kidman is like at once – I mean, Nicole Kidman has been campaigning for this Emmy. You talk about, like, from April all that shit was booked up. Nicole Kidman has been campaigning for this Emmy since February. But that is it to me, more than the paycheck anymore. Think about what you just said. Nicole Kidman has been campaigning for this Emmy. That's way more important than money. Nicole Kidman, Oscar winner, has been campaigning for an Emmy award. Did you ever think you would say that statement, let alone when my smug face was looking at you to say it. And this is where we were. This is where we are. But that to me is more interesting than money and more indicative of a real size. I don't shift. think it's I don't think it's one or the other. I think it's all linked. I think that they are seeing the budgets that they're working with on the television side now. I think they're seeing the impact. Like Nicole Kidman has said multiple times while she's been campaigning for this Emmy that she has really enjoyed her foray into television because it's that immediate connection with the audience. Uh, she has said, it has surprised me how people have been affected by my performance in this immediate way. When I do a film, I haven't had this kind of reaction. But when I've done a TV show and I've even gone to another set, they keep asking me, what happens to Celeste? Big Little Lies is so great. This has never happened to me before. Nicole Kidman! And it's I, never happened to her before. And, you know, I actually think that has a lot to do with social media, right? When you are on television, you are in people's homes in a way that you're not in the movie theater. We're still supposed to put away our phones in the movie theaters, whatever. Uh, but let's face it, like the new world of TV is to be tweeting with the showrunner of the show while it's on. And the showrunner's like, this is why we chose this color and this is why we had this person. And this is the time when the actor fell and broke his leg and we had to put them behind a vase while we finished the scene or whatnot. That's an intimacy that is unparalleled and that movies don't have any way to replicate. Uh, and so it's an unexpected thing that the, the lesser art form that is in your own home has become the one that is, you know, a, a 4D experience. You know how our biggest night usually... And our biggest award show of the year is the Oscars. Sure. How long before we put the same energy into the Emmys that we do the Oscars? And in fact, we get the same or it exceeds that. I'm Googling uh, the date of the Emmy Awards 2017. September? 17th. September yeah. 17th. And you know what? It's coming close. And one of the reasons I know that is because of how disappointed we were in the Tonys this year, 
the Tonys were fine. The Tonys were bland. The, you know, a lot of deserving productions got, got their due. But last year's Tonys was a barn burner with all kinds of big, huge names that we see in lots of places, not just in theater, but who cross from film to theater to television to et cetera. It became a bigger, bigger night. Similarly, the Emmys are a bigger night if the Emmys themselves can get it together and like not spend 18% of their time on modern family jokes and sort of, you know, put on the TV screen, the TV stars that people want to see and not the network stars that are uh, paying the bills at ABC, frankly. Hire me. So are you saying this year? This year, Emmy coverage will be, like, we will be, like, that will be our big night? I'm not saying Emmy coverage this year is going to be bigger than the Oscars necessarily. I'm saying this is going to be, by all means, the Emmys to beat. And it may, yeah, set the new threshold. This is the 69th. Um, By the 70th, yeah, we may have seen the tipping point. We go to L.A. every year for the Oscars. Are you (laughs) suggesting we're getting on a plane? So at what point do we have to start booking tickets to go to the Emmys, to cover the Emmys from L.A.? Again, I say, let me do a little Googling. <laughs> um, so given that there are so many shows. Yeah. And the Emmys and the nominations are coming up. If we have to, what's the show that you'll throw everything behind? Are we talking about for the win or just sheer enjoyment right now? Uh, the win. I mean, Master of None is rewriting the book. Master of None is may not get awards because it is not necessarily going to be familiar to voters. It looks different every episode in season two, but it is rewriting the book of what things look like uh, on the on the comedy side. Uh, on the hour-long side, it's hard to look away from Big Little Lies, which is the combination of it was excellent and it was a crowd pleaser as opposed to say The Handmaid's Tale which it was excellent and men can't bear to be in the same room as it so you know we'll see I have a question for you because my show that you know if I were to throw everything behind it would be a show that I'm wondering whether or not it's an underdog now simply because it doesn't feel fresh anymore Mm -hmm. and that's Atlanta so Atlanta won the Golden Globe, or yes. and it had its moment then, but it wasn't eligible for last year's Emmy. So it feels like it's a season behind. Do you know what, you know yes, what I mean, I right? Agree. Yeah. But Atlanta actually hasn't yet contended for Emmy yet. It will be contending. Well, we don't know what the nominations are, but we're thinking it will be contending. So has it sort of yeah, pro- I'm peaked say, already? And yes, I'm going to say it peaked too early, not because. Uh, not because it's not as good, but because of uh, it's sort of just a quieter show. Uh, and because the comedy category is so weird, because it is a comedy, but not really a comedy, because I'm over here screaming about catastrophe, which could not be more different than Atlanta, but is just as gripping. Uh, and because, yeah, there's a little more, uh, there's a little more momentum behind other shows right now. I'm really curious to see if Atlanta is going to be a factor or whether or not like it just, you know, it's so far away from our memories. I mean, what's really interesting is when the dark horses are still the cream of the television crop. Who's the dark horse? 
Well, like if Atlanta is a dark right. horse at this point, it's still a goddamn excellent show. I know. It would make me sad if just because of by virtue of when it was released, it missed that cutoff or whatnot. But hey, that's what happens in the era of big TV. What should we be watching that, uh, Emmy or not, what's your thing that you're watching that we should be digging into now while it's summer and theoretically slower, but not actually? No, because like Insecure and Game of Thrones and everything and, and, and are starting up in a few weeks. So there's no downtime. I'm still not done Fargo. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. Um, On that note, thank you so much for listening. Let us know what we should be watching, that you're watching. Yell at us. Tell us about the celebrities from your town or village. Uh, Tell me if you agree with Duanna that Sister Act 2 had the same cultural importance as Elvis Presley, the king of rock and roll. If you want to uh, send me something to read or your grocery list for next time we're talking about uh, Elvis and Graceland, you let me know. I will proofread. And I went through an entire podcast without insulting farmers or organic food. (laughs) We did very, very well. (laughs) Until next time, thanks for listening. This is Show Your Work. Check us out on iTunes and Google Play. Bye. See you next time. Bye. on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.